Great. Welcome back, everybody. This is our third class. So by now you might start feeling like you're lost or you can't remember what you learned two weeks ago or a month ago. So I will try to, uh, every week, start with a brief uh, recap of where we're up to in the Tanya. In the first class, we gave an introduction to Hasidus by sharing stories of the Baal Shem Tov, how he was born, how his parents merited to have him as a child, his childhood. And last week, we spoke a little bit more about being an orphan of both parents, how he attached himself to the group of Nistarim, this um, underground network of uh, great Kabbalists that disguised themselves as uh, um, pretty much beggars. And that way they were able to engage with the uneducated class in a way that they wouldn't feel intimidated and they were able to raise their spirits. Those are just a few words about the beginning, the origins of Hasidus. We described how the Baal Shem Tov on his 36th birthday was asked by his teacher to reveal himself to begin to teach this new approach to Judaism. Now, the Torah doesn't change, and therefore no laws change. The Baal Shem Tov didn't come to say that uh, we could eat something that we couldn't eat, or we could do something that we couldn't. It's about emphasis. So he didn't change any laws of the Torah, but he placed an emphasis on certain areas that he felt needed to be focused on um, in helping people achieve what they need to achieve in this world. That's as far as background is concerned. Then we came into the actual Tanya. Two weeks ago, we took a look at the title page of the Tanya, and the Tanya in its title page quotes the, the, the words of Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, in the last month of his life in this world, he turned to the Jewish people and he said that this is not far from you. It's very near to you in your mouth and in your heart to do it. And the author of the Tanya said he's going to explain how it is very near, because it's easier said than done. Very easy for Moshe Rabbeinu to say that it's very near to us, and it must be true if he said so, but how is it yet to us? But he said it's going to be a long, short way, meaning that there aren't any shortcuts, there aren't any quick fixes. It's a journey. It's a journey through the Tanya where we slowly discover how we can get in touch with Hashem and in touch with our souls. That's as far as the title page. Then we moved on to the beginning of chapter one. Chapter one started by asking a lot of questions. Firstly, how do we view ourselves? We have an interesting passage that before a child is born, it's asked to swear that it'll be a tzaddik. But even if the whole world tells it that it is a tzaddik, then he or she, even if he really is a tzaddik, or it seems so, because everybody's saying so, he's not just feeding himself, he should still view himself as a Russia, like somebody who's bad. And we said that doesn't sound very good for somebody's self-confidence. I mean, it's one thing if somebody is bad to at least acknowledge it. But yeah, he isn't even bad. The whole world's telling him he's good. Why should he view himself as bad? We don't answer that question right away. We're only going to answer it later in the Tanya. We're just asking a few questions that challenge us to think about who we are. That's question number one. Question number two was, the Tanya is called the book for Bedonim. A Bedonim means an in-betweener. He's neither a tzaddik nor a rasha. He's neither a saint nor a wicked person. Is somewhere in between. And the Tanya in the first chapter asked, where exactly does this guy fit in? Because the moment we do anything wrong, at that moment, what's wrong is wrong. So it doesn't really work like, you know, I do some things good, I do some things bad, so that's fine, as long as I'm doing more good than bad. I mean, it depends 
different scenarios that we think about. I don't, I don't, I don't remember how much we discussed this last week, but if you have a guy that decides that he's going to, he's not just going to rub the whole week. You know, Mondays and Tuesdays he'll rub, and then on Wednesdays he'll give stucker. So we're not going to say, okay, maybe he's even giving more than he's stealing. So, okay, okay at this point, he's pretty much a good guy because he does more mitzvahs than sins. That's ridiculous because if it's wrong, it's wrong. So the Altarebbe, the first chapter of the Tanya asks, where exactly is this Bainani, this in-between guy? Because this book is for the in-between guys. There's a tradition that there was another book written for Tzadikim, but it was burnt or lost because uh, it wasn't for most of us. But we're just the average guy. We're just somewhere in between. We're, we're, we're neither saints nor are we sinners. So where does the Bainani fit in? Because if we do something wrong, it's wrong. And if we're doing something right, then, then that's great. So we're, either it's right or it's wrong. So how does the in-betweener fit into the picture? And in order to answer the second question, we asked a lot more questions, but I'm trying to keep it uh, simple and clear um, for this crowd. In order to answer that, he says, we need to dig deeper. We can't just look at the way we act. We need to have an understanding of who we are and what's going on inside of ourselves. And that's where there's an in-betweener. That's where there's a person in between. As far as action, we've got to make sure that we do the right thing. And if it's right, it's good. And if it's wrong, then it shouldn't be done. It's not, it's not negotiable. If it's something that is not allowed, it's not allowed. But it doesn't always just boil down to what we do. So the author tells us that we need to look deeper. We can't just look at how we act, but we need to look at what's going on inside of ourselves. What's going on inside of our minds? What's going on inside of our hearts? And to this end, the author at the end of the first chapter of Tanya introduced a novelly Hasidic concept, which is that we have two souls. You always, speak, you always hear about the soul, but the Tanya says there's two souls. What are the two souls? The first soul is called the animal soul or the vivifying soul, the one that gives us vitality. And the second soul is called the godly soul. What's the difference between these two souls? The animal soul is what gives us life. So it's the difference between a person that's alive and a person that's dead. More than that, it also um, gives us negative. It also gives us some negative character traits, or I should say selfish character traits. I'll just pause for a moment. Welcome. So we're describing two souls. The first soul is the animal soul. The animal soul is the part that makes us live. Now an animal is not bad, certainly not. I'm sure many of you have animals as pets, but animals need to look after themselves or we need to look after them too. But the point is that um, altruism is something that is not expected of an animal. An animal is, the, the nature of everything in this world really is to look, take care of itself. Human beings are no different. We need to look after ourselves. We need to make sure that we take care of our own needs. I recently heard a nice and interesting explanation. It's a little bit off the track, but I uh, found it interesting. You know, when you're on the airplane, they say, first put the mask on yourself before you put it on the child. So you might wonder that, you know, 
it's kind of obvious. If you're not going to have oxygen, then uh, you're not going to be able to help anybody. Do they really need to say that? But somebody was saying that, I don't remember where I heard it, that a parent actually would put it on the child before themselves. So in a parent-child relationship, a parent will be willing to uh, take care of somebody before themselves. Um, but naturally, as human beings, we look after ourselves first. And that's the animal soul. And that's maybe what I mentioned last week, what Freud spoke about, um, about how whatever a person does boils back to somewhat selfish drives. That's soul number one. Soul number two is the godly soul. And that's what we're going to speak about to these gods today. But before we speak about it, which is the discussion of chapter two of the Tanya, and three and four and five, but we're just going to discuss chapter two today. Just to wrap up where we're up to. The, the novel idea of two souls over two inclinations is that it doesn't start by deciding which voice you're going to listen to, whether you're going to do the right thing or the wrong thing. I mean, that is a big part of it, but that doesn't reach the root of the matter. We need to first realize that there's two drives inside of us. There's two motivations. There's two interests that exist inside of us. We have one interest, which is to take care of ourselves, which is that selfish approach. And we have another interest, which is to connect to Hashem. And these two interests come from the two souls. The soul that the animal soul drives us to take care of ourselves and uh, is more selfish. And the godly soul is one that says it's not about me, it's about God. And when we realize that everything we do is motivated by one of these two souls, then that will motivate us and empower us to have the strength to make the right decisions. Because very often we know what needs to be done, but we can't help it. I'd love to, but I can't, maybe I won't even say I can't because I could, but I won't. I'm not. Not today. Or I know I should be doing something, but I will. So. The moral choices between right and wrong, yes, we have free choice and we need to make the right choice, but we need a motivation to do so. And when we get in touch with the drives that exist within ourselves, when we get in touch with the two souls, the godly soul and the animal soul, it will give us the ammunition, the, the energy, the power, the motivation to be able to actually make the right moral choices. And this is where we're up to in the journey of the Tanya. We're up to discovering these inner drives that exist inside of us, the animal soul and the godly soul. And as mentioned, the animal soul is not bad, but it does need to be, it can lead us to negative places. If a person is selfish, really being selfish is not bad. Maybe that sounds bad. But you just find another word, another synonym, it'll sound just fine. Um, selfish is a human condition. It can lead a person to bad places. So you got to be careful how you go about it. Um, so ultimately at the time we're going to learn how to utilize even our selfishness for positive things but for starters we've got to acknowledge that we have these two drives inside of ourselves and at the end of chapter one he describes how um, he just speaks about an example of a few different emotions he says the world is made up of four general elements there are many elements but they divided into four general kind of categories and they are you don't need to remember this but it's quite interesting water Anybody know? Air, earth, and fire. Okay, any all of this world is made up is a composition of either the heat of fire or uh, 
air or water or earth. And he says, just like the world, if, when it decomposes or when you dissect it, comes back to these four basic four elements. So too, our animal soul has four elements, which are, if they haven't been worked on, are all negative as well. What are they? What are the counterparts? So he says, fire produces anger or arrogance, just like fire goes up and gets heated up and a person gets angry or they get, or they get arrogant. They get uh, heated up upwards. And that's negative. Water is a source of desire and pleasure. It causes a person to sometimes, water is associated with seeking pleasure because water, in the positive sense, the water is what gives um, taste to all of vegetation, to, to, to the fruit trees, to, to, to fruits. So water is a source of pleasure. And in, in the animal soul, it could be the person to desire, desire that would go to negative places. Air is silliness or talking nonsense, or not arrogance, but um, uh, fake arrogance, where a person holds themselves like a balloon that there's nothing in it. And earth is a source of laziness and depression, because earth is heavy and it's cold. And when a person becomes lazy or depressed, they become very earthy, very heavy. So these are all examples of negative character traits that come from our animal soul. But now let's move on to the positive. So now we move to chapter two. Any questions before we continue? Why would arrogance? No. Why would fire uh, represent arrogance? Like heating up, when somebody gets all heated up, it could be also for something amazing good. So that aspect of fire, why is that correspond to something negative? That's a good question. So we're speaking before we start, before we, uh, a fire needs to be handled. It needs to be managed. A fire can produce wonders, right? Yeah, a fire, you just put, you put a, a stove on top, you put a pot on top of it and then you could cook up the most delicious dinner. Fires are powerful. They're, they're, they're very much necessary in society. They do tremendous good, but they have to be controlled. And now we're talking about our animal soul before we work on it. If we just follow our instincts, if we just follow whatever feels good, then it's going to end us in, then that will get heated up in a negative way. It's only when we work on ourselves that we could redirect these tremendously powerful, potentially positive energies in a good direction. But before we work on it, it's, 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 it's destructive. Later in the Tanya, in chapter three, now we're not too far, we're already up to chapter two. In chapter three, I'll describe how the godly soul also has these four elements. And the fire of the godly soul is where it's, uh, we'll get there, but it's going to be something wonderful. Yes. Yeah, so again, we're speaking about as these um, elements manifest themselves in a selfish approach. We're not coming to, this isn't a bad PR uh, stunt on fire and water. Fire is wonderful, water is wonderful. We're saying the world has four elements and these elements also exist in our selfish soul. And if it isn't worked on, it can lead us to negative places. Two different interpretations of those. So, 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 
manifestations yeah so it's it's how these elements manifest themselves in a selfish soul okay yes using that example of the airplane with the bar yeah you're not supposed to uh, put them off in somebody else but if you're saving that person or helping that person before you stop but you're sinning how does that work how do you reconcile that okay let me think about that for a moment so you're actually doing something positive for the other person but you're yeah. actually breaking the law I mean, the, the law is probably designed that you should have enough oxygen in yourself to be able to help other people. I, I would maybe ask a different question, which is, when do, uh, it's, it's a general question, which the Tanya speaks about, I mean, you could ask me outside of this class because, or you could wait because it's in chapter 35. <laughs> so you'll need to stick around a couple of weeks. Where the Tanya speaks about action versus intention. So it's a fundamental question that people ask. What's more important, the action or the intention? So uh, I'm going to park that question for now, if I may. <laughs> okay. So that's the one part of us, the animal soul. It's, it's a part of who we are and can be worked with. This is not here to... to uh, make you despondent that you're selfish it's 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 a, it's a fact but it's something that could be worked out in a positive direction but the good news is that in addition to having the godly the animal soul we also have lights we also have a godly soul and here in chapter two we're going to speak about the godly soul we're going to speak about it in chapter two and then three and then four and then five but if you're wondering why we're speaking about it for so long it's because there's a lot to learn but for starters chapter two the godly soul here we go the very first line of chapter two is quoted here in your source sheets. And he says, these are the opening words. Please God, next week. We're still on next week. Right, next week's the last week before we break up. I do actually have copies of the first 12 chapters of the Tanya um, here. I just need to unload uh, it. I'll have copies for everybody to use. Are most of you here next week? Okay. No pressure. So the beginning of chapter two says like this. The second soul of a Jew is truly a part of Hashem above, as it is written, and he blew into his nostrils a soul of life. And the Tanya continues to quote from the Zayar. The Zayar asks the question, what does the Torah mean when it says that God blew into Adam a breath of life? Like he blew what, from his chest? Or did he use a pump? You know, God is not a human being. Why is it using this terminology to blow? It's hard to understand why it says blow about God. And the Zayar, the Kabbalah says that when a person blows, they blow air from deeper within. That's why a person can talk for a long time without getting tired. But if you blow, you're ever blowing up a floaty to go in the swimming pool or a ball, whatever it is, after a few, for those of younger kids, after a few minutes, you're exhausted. Because when you blow, you, you're giving up your kishkas. You're blowing from deep within. So the Zayar says the reason why the Torah uses the terminology of blowing when describing God um, bringing a soul into Adam was to tell us that the soul of man, and now it's talking about the godly soul, comes from God himself. 
And that's why it uses the terminology flow. The world is created through Hashem's speech. It says with 10 utterances, God created the world. Let there be light, there was light. Let there be dry land, there was dry land. There was speech. Meaning, God is super powerful. And as incredible as this world is around us, the, the trees and the clouds and the skies, it didn't take much, for, much energy from God's part because God is much greater than that. And so it was just a word. We just said it and it came into being. I mean, imagine, you know, some big CEO or president and he just says, I need this to happen and then it happens. So that's in the little finite unit. He has a lot of power under him and therefore he just says it and it happens. But obviously there's still people that need to go and make, make it happen. With God, he's so powerful. He just said, let there be and there was. So it didn't take much of himself it, it was something that the, the world was created through, so to speak, an external part of Hashem. Hashem doesn't have parts. This is going into a little bit of Kabbalah, but I, we'll try to keep it simple. But it means that the world isn't necessarily a reflection of Hashem himself. When we look at the world around us, we say, where did it come from? So we know it, ha it had to have had a maker. But it doesn't tell us much about that maker. We just know the story of the, the, the philosopher that was uh, trying to convince the child that Kuzari, I think, brings us that uh, that the world came about through an explosion or the Big Bang, and uh, the child stepped out for a minute. The professor stepped out for a minute, and the child quickly wrote a poem. And the professor came back inside. And the professor said, "Oh wow, what a beautiful poem! I like what you did." He said, "Me? No. While you were out, the the wind blew and the ink fell, and, and the poem." He said. What do you mean? Behind every word, there's such wisdom. That doesn't just happen by the wind. So the child said, yes, behind this world, there's tremendous wisdom. It doesn't just happen by a bang. So certainly the fact that this world exists tells us that there is a creator, but it doesn't tell us much about that creator. Why? Because the world is created with more of an external part of Hashem. As opposed to the neshama, the godly soul, comes from Hashem itself. As the Tanya says, it's a part of Hashem above. And that's something incredible because it means that when we look into our godly soul, it bridges the gap between the finite and the infinite. It gives us the ability to be able to discover Hashem. A little anecdote on that. There was a group of students that once came into a private audience with the Rebbe in uh, 1960, 1961. And uh, they were asking different questions. One of the students asked the Rebbe, um, uh, what is a Jewish soul? The Rebbe first responded briefly, and the Shabbat is a spark that gives life to the body. And it gives the body the ability to do Torah and Mitzvahs. But the Rebbe saw that the student wasn't satisfied. He didn't feel like he had an understanding of what the Shabbat is. And so the Rebbe continued. Um, uh, with a few words, and then he said, This spark is a part of Hashem, without which there would be no connection between creator and created. Yet, the creator in his abounding mercy gave the creators the ability to bridge the finite and infinite. Between them, there is a vast gap. Yet the Neshama is the intermediary that makes this connection. So this second soul, this godly soul, is something that is out of this world. It is 
not finite. It is not worldly. It is the opposite of everything we described about the animal soul within us. It is a part of Hashem. And when we get in touch with it, it helps us understand things in a way that's completely out of this world. And this is what drives us towards doing mitzvahs. This is what drives us towards doing things in a completely non-selfish way. But obviously, this is called the second soul because instinctively we're drawn after selfishness. That's the human condition. But when we're able to discover the garden soul and to nurture it, then we're able to extend beyond ourselves and to bridge the gap between the finite and the infinite. This is really the point of chapter two, that every Jew has a part of Hashem within him. Rabbi Nissan Mindel was a secretary of the Rebbe. He, coined a lot, he penned a lot of letters that were written in English. The Rebbe would receive thousands of letters and the Rebbe would just respond to his secretaries in point form. While reading the next letter, he'd be responding to the first, just giving a few points and then the secretaries would write it up and then give it to the Rebbe to check over. And then they would be sent out um, to the recipients. Um, obviously, Anessa was private. Every letter was re read by the Rebbe himself, nobody else. So this Rabbi Nissan Mendel had a beautiful uh, um, understanding of the English language, and he would write a lot of the Rebbe's English letters, and he went to Israel in the uh, uh, 1985. He went to Israel, and he was interviewed by one of the papers there, the Kfar Chabad, and one of the questions that he was asked was, is there a connection between Hasidic philosophy and Chabad outreach? Because one is philosophy and the other is outreach. They seem very, could be very far apart. One is a study. One is, a, is, a, is a, an organization. What's the connection between them? And he said, there's a very deep connection between them. What is that connection? When we realize that every Jew has a neshama, has a part of Hashem, has a part of himself that is pure, or herself that is purely good, then that's a game changer for outreach. Because it means that when somebody walks in, no matter how they look or no matter how they behave, they have already, that person already has something super godly about them. And when we look at them in such a way that they belong, that whatever we're discussing is for them, it's not something distant from them. And very often people will want to test us on that. You know, somebody, sometimes a person will specifically um, be provocative or behave provocatively because they want to see, you know, what do I think of this person? Do I view this person as, you know, Meshuggah or, or, or as a sinner? And the answer is I could never because I've learned chapter two of the Tanya. And chapter two of the Tanya tells me that every single Jew has a part of God within him. And so regardless of how the person behaves or how they dress or what they say, I know that there's something special about them. And now it's just a matter of of helping them discover it. That's our ending time, quarter two, ten two, what did you say? Ten two. Ten two. Okay, good. We got so much more to say. Yes, go for it. So what if the person, even if they're Jewish, is the most violent person, like a pedophile or murderer? Uh, if he was telling me it came out <laughs> in the class. <laughs> this is a, a very common question. It's a real question. Yeah. Um, it's a big topic. But what I would so say is like this. Uh, yeah, somebody that's done a lot of bad. What I'd say is like this. Um, sometimes we need to act in a way that addresses the danger. Okay. 
And but that doesn't still tell us who the person is. So let me just give a simple example. My sister, Shada, lives in the States and she works for an organization called the Aleph Institute. What do they do? They help the Jewish incarcerated. And it's an unbelievable organization. And you'd say, like, you know, the guy's in jail. You know, is that the first guy you want to be helping out? Okay, sometimes people are convicted under false cases but most of the cases they're dealing with are not false they're real the person's done something bad enough that the judiciary system said that they need to be removed from society okay so they are bad because they're out they'd be duped but they're not they haven't a shovel unfortunately the way they acted caused us to need to take certain action but that doesn't change the fact that they still have something good in them that needs to be um, nurtured so it's really about differentiating between addressing the act and addressing who the person is. And so, yes, we'll say that even the murderer, whoever, however evil the person may have behaved and he will need to suffer the consequences for that, it does not mean that they don't have the potential for good inside of them. So we're not coming to legitimize people for what they've done, but we are coming to recognize that regardless of what the person's done, there's still something good inside of them. And really, the reason why it's a good question is because it applies to us as well, uh, as well. because often our owner, Yetzirah, comes with a tactic that says, you know, look how bad you are. We've got to say to him, okay, I'm not going to say what I did wasn't bad. It was bad. And action needs to be taken. There, needs, there are consequences, but that doesn't define who I am. So yes, even the criminal, even the murderer, we can't define them by their actions. We need to respond to their actions but we can't define them by that. I'm sure there's a million questions. <laughs> yes, go for it. Yeah. So, so, so on a deeper level, even when a person was given the death penalty, then a shama through that was... Um, absolved of the evil that it had performed so it could actually go to heaven. In other words, even punishment is, from a, from a functional level, the punishment needs to be executed because a person's done something bad, but it still doesn't mean that the person isn't good at all. Why don't you want to ask? Because being a shoma, it's clear that it has to come from them. They can still choose to behave. Yeah, so so this is, I mean, free will is is a fundamental concept in Judaism, but I hate to break it to you because you sometimes speak in strong terms that it actually uh, you remember it. We don't have we don't have free will about our neshama. We can't get rid of our neshama. We can't move away from it. We can't destroy it. It's here, and it's here to stay. And when we're able to get in touch with it, then we'll be able to achieve wonders. Uh, we, we're able to. We have free will of whether we are going to um, act on our neshama, whether we're going to allow our neshama to surface, but um, we don't have free will whether it exists. I'm sure there's a number of questions. We do need to wrap up now. I want to just conclude with one final point. There's a lot more to be said in chapter two, but I'm going to want to keep moving. So please God, next week we'll already move on to chapter three. But one final point I'll just mention from chapter two. The end of chapter two speaks about the idea of a rebbe, the role of a rebbe. People often ask, you know, what do I need a rebel for? There's me and this God, and I can speak to God in my own way. 
And chapter two says that what a Rebbe does is a Rebbe helps us get in touch with our Neshama. That's really the role of a Rebbe. The idea of a Rebbe is that by the Neshama, his Neshama, by the Rebbe, his Neshama is more um, evident, it's more revealed, meaning that there's less selfishness that masks the Neshama. And when we have an experience with the Rebbe, when a person would have an opportunity to have an experience with the Rebbe or um, connect with the Rebbe, the Rebbe helps the person get in touch with their Neshama. And I'll conclude with a story told by Yehuda Avdar, who was uh, an ambassador for Israel, with a number of the, uh, he spends a lot of time with a lot of the, uh, the Israeli presidents and prime ministers. Um, I, I hope he's still alive today. He spoke a few years ago at the, one of the Chabad conferences and he shared the following story. He said that once he was by the Rebbe, one of the presidents or prime ministers of the Rebbe had had a private audience. So then he also had an opportunity to speak to the Rebbe. And at the end of the meeting, I'm just saying it very briefly, he asked the Rebbe, what do you do? Which is a little bit of a chutzpah of a question to ask, but he did, he had the chutzpah, not in a negative way. And the Rebbe answered that, um, to kind of long story short, the Rebbe said that, I try to lighten every person's neshama. And so he turned to the Rebbe and he said, Rebbe, have you lit my neshama? And the Rebbe said, no, but I've given you the batch. So that is a story that largely epitomizes the idea of the Rebbe. The idea of the Rebbe is, doesn't do the work for you. Ultimately, we're human beings and we need to work on ourselves. But, when we, but the, the, uh, the concept of a Rebbe in Judaism, of a Moshe Rabbeinu, of a Moses, is to help us get in touch with our godly soul. Thanks for joining. You're welcome to ask any additional